bringing you the best of contemporary classical and hits from centuries before. CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary and broadcasting on Treaty 7 lands. You are tuned into a new episode of Writer's Block on CJSW. CJSW's Writer's Block broadcasts out of the University of Calgary campus radio station at CJSW 90.9 FM, located on Treaty 7 territory. Writer's Block airs at 8 p.m. on the third Wednesday of every month. If you ever miss our show live, you can check out our podcast at cjsw.com slash writers dash block. This episode of Writer's Block is brought to you by a student-driven collective. We'll be featuring inspiring interviews, poetry and fiction readings, and creative segments. Today's episode of Writer's Block features interviews with Mona Awad about her newest publication, All's Well, and an interview with Amy LeBlanc about her debut novel, Unlocking. Not to mention our newest conversational segment, You Know What Flips My Pages, the authoritative and educational discussion on Writer's Block on what's on our minds this month in the literary world. Keep it locked to CJSW 90.9 FM. Our first segment coming up next is an interview with local author Amy LeBlanc. Amy LeBlanc is managing editor at Filling Station Magazine. Her debut poetry collection, I Know Something You Don't Know, was published with Gordon Hill Press in March 2020 and was longlisted for the 2021 Relit Award and selected as a finalist for the Stephen G. Stephenson Award for Poetry. Her novella, Unlocking, was published by the U Calgary Press in June 2021. Her work has appeared in Room, Contemporary Verse 2, Prism International, and the Literary Review of Canada, among others. Amy's next chapbook, Undead Juliet at the Museum, is forthcoming with Zed Press in 2021. Amy is a recipient of the 2020 Lieutenant Governor of Alberta Emerging Artist Award and will be starting her PhD in English at the University of Calgary in the fall. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Amy. My name is Maddie Robinson, and today we are interviewing Amy LeBlanc about her new novella, Unlocking. Um, This is just a delightful novella. I really, really enjoyed it, and I was super excited for it. Uh, So, Amy, just to begin, did you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure thing. So, like you said, my name's Amy. Um, I am a writer from Calgary. I just finished my master's in English and creative writing at UFC, and I'm studying my PhD here in the fall. Um, And this is my first work of long form fiction, Um, but I do have a poetry collection that came out um, right when COVID was starting called I Know Something You Don't Know, but I'm really excited to have a work of of longer form fiction out in the world and I'm excited to get to talk to you about it today. Um, So thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you. I remember reading about the plot of this novella maybe a year or two ago before it came out, and I thought it was super, super cool. I know people always talk about how there's like no original ideas anymore, but when I read the idea about this novella, I thought it was super original and I was super excited about it. Um, So for the listeners, in this novella, the main character finds herself in a peculiar situation as she collects the keys of others in her town without their awareness, and then something starts to happen and she gets herself into kind of a very interesting situation. Um, And I thought this plot was really, really intriguing and unique. And so I was wondering, um, what was the initial inspiration for the plot in the novella? Did anything prompt the idea or did you just kind of come up with it on your own? So it's a little bit of both, which I know for a lot of writers is kind of how it works is you you kind of collect things and you hear things and then it sparks something that you come up with. 
Um, and I think for me, where this started was I was really curious about communities, especially small kind of insular communities and the different things that happen in those, in those spaces. For Lou in particular, she didn't start out as Lou. In the very first iterations of this book, it was about a man named Ed who was collecting keys. And then he was with me for about two years and then it just wasn't working. Ed had to go. And then Lou was kind of this combination of a lot of different characters that I had read and loved in various novellas specifically. Um, so I, I borrowed the name Lou from Bear by Marian Angle, which is a very different kind of book from mine. De definitely. Um, but, <laughs> definitely. Um, but I wanted to kind of encapsulate some of those characteristics that Lou and Bear has um, and kind of put it into a totally different context. With the hardware store key cutting elements specifically, even thinking back, I am not 100% sure where that came from and when that came to me. I feel like it must have happened after visiting like the old like Kensington hardware store or something and seeing just this like small independent hardware store and just kind of picturing like what kind of narrative would happen in this place. So I think just to, to go back to your question, it's, it's kind of a combination of, of reading lots and kind of going out in the world and just seeing what's happening and then trying to fit all of that together into a narrative and hopefully writing something that's unique and interesting and hasn't just been been done before. Why did you switch it from the initial character Ed? Was there a particular reason or were you just needing a revamp? It was, it was needing a revamp, but I also, I, I think this happens to a lot of writers just when you've spent long enough with something. So I started working on this in 2016 and I took some time away from it and I came back and I just hated Ed so much. <laughs> it was the kind of thing where it was like, if this is a guy that I know, I would want nothing to do with you. And it was kind of a moment of realizing that it's like, I can't, I can't write this book if I feel this much disdain for my main character, because that's totally going to come through. And that's where Lou came in, where it was like, okay, well, if I made this story about somebody else, and if I made it a story about, like, female friendship and family and grief, instead of just kind of this kooky story about a man named Ed, I could actually do something, I think, much better and much more profound. But fundamentally, I just really could not spend another day writing about Ed. I just had to get rid of him. So it wasn't even that thing of kill your darlings. It was just like, you're gone. You're out. I don't want you anymore. <laughs> it's not kill your darlings. It's I don't like my darling that much. I don't anymore. like my darling. Exactly. <laughs> I don't want my darling. That's really interesting. And actually, to be honest, I thought that the other elements, like the female friendship and some of the grief and stuff, worked really well with the novel because you do kind of pair some tragedy with a lot of humor in the novel. Um, I was curious about that too, actually, because I noticed that the dialogue, particularly with the Thanksgiving scene, but also with one of the main characters, I believe her name is Euphemia, right? Am I yeah. pronouncing that correctly? Yeah. You are. Um, yeah. She has some just excellent dialogue. I was laughing out loud while I was reading this novel, and sometimes people kind of look at me because I like to read out, like outside. <laughs> so I just start laughing and people kind of glance at me. Um, and I was curious about the dialogue as well. Was it inspired by any real events or were you thinking kind of about silly, silly ideas? And how did you kind of balance the humor with the tragedy in this book? Or was it just kind of something that came naturally to you? With kind of balancing the humor and the tragedy, um, it's really interesting because kind of what I've been taught and what I've found by reading other books is that if you want to write about grief, you have to make it funny. 
And if you want to write humor, you have to have like an underlying element of, of grief and sadness to it. Um, Cause those are just two kind of facets of literature that just pair together so well is humor and tragedy. And part of that is just that I have always had quite a dark sense of humor. So I often find things that are funny and things that <laughs> maybe other people don't. Right. <laughs> um, but it also just works really well to kind of offset each of them. Cause if you had a moment that was entirely humor, entirely grief, it can just be too much of one thing. Whereas if you can kind of pair those and, and tie those together in a really interesting way, then you can have like a much more impactful moment for the most part. And I think dialogue is a particularly good vessel for kind of exploring that humor grief combination because like for dialogue you have to have characters and when you have characters that you know really well you know what their voices are like um, and that's what I have with Euphemia at this point is that a lot of her lines just came really naturally because I knew exactly what she would say in any given situation and I knew that it would probably be snarky and <laughs> sarcastic and kind of undercutting but I just knew her well enough by the final kind of drafts of the book to know exactly how she would inject some humor into tragedy um, or how she would kind of suddenly be serious and really empathetic and understanding in a moment that other people might find kind of humorous. So she was really my kind of linchpin in those moments, I think, where most of the book, it's about Lou, but I feel like it might almost be more about Euphemia because she's the one that all of these moments kind of channels through before they get to Lou. Yeah, totally. I totally saw Euphemia as almost like the second main character in a strange way, even though it's about Lou, she seems to kind of orbit around Lou constantly. And I always found her dialogue was really funny because she's so smart, but also like a little bit mean, <laughs> but not in a mean, a mean cruelty. way. Yeah. yeah, a little cruel, I think, but <laughs> in a very cool way. Um, I was going to also ask as well, uh, without any obvious spoilers for the people who haven't read the novella yet, I'm curious about the ending and kind of how you came up with it. Do you plan your endings or did you have different endings and it changed as you went along? What's your process there? It kind of depends on the project that I'm working on. Because sometimes I have, I, I kind of start with an ending in mind and I know exactly where I want a piece to finish. With this one, I didn't know. Um, and I've had... I think five different endings written out um, of just different ways that it could all go and all kind of tie together at the end. And then this is, again, without spoilers, this is ultimately the one that, that I chose to go with. But it was really difficult to figure out what exactly I wanted that kind of last section to look like. Because as much as people read a book and read the entire, entire work, the ending is a lot of the time what really sticks with you and it really kind of lands in a way that the rest of the book might not. So I wanted the ending to be kind of perfect and I'm not sure if I did that, but it changed a lot as I was as I was drafting and reworking because I just I just didn't quite know how to wrap it up. And if I wanted to wrap it up or if I wanted to leave it more open-ended. So I kind of settled for somewhere right in the middle of, of wrapping it up and leaving it open um, to hopefully kind of give all the characters the ending that they deserve without just trying to tie everything up with a bow completely. So this work is organized by the changing of the seasons, which I thought was very interesting and very Canadian in its own way, just because we have such dramatic change of the seasons. The ending is kind of under the chapter title False Spring, which I thought was very interesting almost to connect that with the end of the plot. Was there a particular reason why you chose to go with this kind of structure and the idea of a false spring? Because in Canada, we get a lot of false springs often. And were there any implications there that you're kind of thinking about? Absolutely. So with kind of working through the seasons, um, something that I did have in mind 
this was another element that came in when I got rid of Ed, when Lou came in, um, was just kind of knowing that I wanted this book to be really focused on winter. Um, and I wanted it to be kind of working through from the beginning of winter towards hopefully the end of winter. And that fall spring kind of has a little bit of a, a little bit of a pushback against the idea that the winter ends. But I wanted to look at, like you said, like the seasons is very, it's very much like a Canadiana kind of thing. But I wanted that long drawn out winter to kind of be like that journey of getting from the start of winter to the end, because it's a challenge every year. And no matter how prepared we think we are to go into winter, it always just kind of like knocks us off our feet sometimes. Um, so I felt like winter would be a particularly good kind of background setting for the book itself and for the story to kind of unpack how everything is just that little bit harder in winter and emotionally, physically, just all of it is just has that extra challenge. Um, and then for false spring at the end, what I wanted to do there was kind of explore the idea that like winter is ending and then kind of, but is it really? Because we do get that false spring all the time where we think it's over and then it's not. So I wanted to kind of pair that with some of the open-endedness at the end to kind of mirror that season with what's actually happening in the book. And I, that's kind of one of those parts where that's my intention behind it. But it's one of those things as a writer where you have your intentions and then readers have their own interpretations and both are perfectly fine so others might take that in a different way uh, but that's kind of what I was thinking about when I did the season especially with the false spring yeah a false spring is a little bit misleading but also interesting because there's a bit of hope there but there's also a bit of fear I think um and Lou's character is so interesting in this novella because as she gets kind of caught into this plot line because she's been collecting these keys Somewhere near the end, she mentions that it gives her this interesting almost feeling of purpose, right? So there's a little bit of the open-endedness at the end because you almost wonder, like, will she ever go on another journey like this again? But that is the open-ended part of it, I suppose, right? <laughs> exactly. And yeah. that's, that is kind of what I was hoping for is that, like, you know that this kind of chapter is done and without a ton of spoilers, the, the keys are accounted for. Yes. <laughs> um, but there's nothing to necessarily say that something else won't go drastically wrong in her life um, or that she won't make something else happen. And I, I wanted to leave that open partly because I, I love Lou as a character and I really wanted to give her the ending that she deserved. And I didn't feel yeah. like if I wrapped it up so tightly, I wanted to give her room to kind of move within that um, in the way that she needs to not be kind of constricted by that really tight story at the end. There are a lot of characters in this town that you've created, and I think there's still a lot of mysteries with some of them that maybe aren't super relevant to her story this time, but there's the implication that she's starting to learn that there's more to everyone that she knows, right? Exactly, and, and more to herself than she knows, as, as cheesy as that sounds. Um, that's ultimately kind of where we come to towards the end of the book. One thing I noticed is this book did actually have a lot of references to other literature. Like you have, I believe, a poem at the beginning by Robert Croach, right? And then you also have some Nabokov and various different things. When you're choosing some of those references, uh, was there any particular reason why? Or was it just quotes that always stuck out to you that you felt kind of propelled this character? Because there are a lot of literary references in here. Was there a, a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah. Um, because for some of them, like the form and the content really fit well. Like you mentioned that Robert Croach poem, that's the epigraph. Um, and that was one, um, Aretha Van Herk sent me this poem after the book had been written. And it was really funny because he read it. And it was like this 
is perfect. If I'd yes. seen this before writing this <laughs> book, this would have probably changed maybe how it would how it would go. So that was a very specific choice of like this piece in particular. I wanted as the opening to kind of set up what the reader might go into the book with, what they might be going into it expecting. Um, and then some of the other ones, some of them are quotes that have always stuck with me. So there's, like you mentioned, the Nabokov quote. Um, there's a Dickens quote, Louisa May Alcott. And then there was one that was quite fun. There's just books that are on Euphemia's bedside table. Um, and I just looked at the books that I had on my bedside table because there were some of my favorites that I keep there. And I kind of pulled those out and, and plugged them in there. So it kind of depended on what the reference was because some of them were really kind of mindfully placed to set up that reading experience like with the epigraph and then others were quotes that just had resonated with me but also fit really well with the content of the book. For the next five minutes or so did you have anything that you'd like to talk about that we could like bring in? Was there anything that you like found really interesting about the writing process or like, for example, you had five endings. That's really cool. That makes me think of like the clue movie where there's like <laughs> all these different endings. All these different endings. Uh, <laughs> They're all tucked away in a folder in my computer somewhere. Yeah. yeah the butler did it. The um, maid did it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I guess I could talk a little <laughs> bit about the process. Um, sure. It was kind of a long, even though it's a very short book, it was a long process. And I suppose the most important part of that process for me was that at one point um, when I got rid of Ed and Lou came in, I did like a full blank page rewrite, just started over completely, kind of kept the same overall narrative frame of the keys and the hardware store, um, but everything else changed. I think there's about 500 words of the original books that are in this book. Um, so that was just a really interesting process to just go totally back to the drawing board, start over. I kept Euphemia. Euphemia was in both drafts, uh, but she was a very different kind of character um, in the second iteration. Um, but that rewrite was a really big undertaking, but it was also exactly what the book needed, ultimately. So it was a really interesting process to just kind of look at it and say, like, okay, wow, am I am I up for hundreds more hours of, of writing in the same story to do it totally differently. And I decided that I was, and I'm glad that I did, because it ultimately was what the narrative needed and what I needed to get this book out. I'm, I'm learning the more that I write and the more that I try to do big projects, a rewrite seems to be in the cards for me every time. If I have a draft, it's fine. And then I fully start over. And that's when things start actually clicking into place. So it's an interesting process. It's a long one, but it's, it was also so rewarding to kind of get to the end of that rewrite and just to know that I had done it better than I had the first time. Um, and things were finally starting to settle where they needed to be. Um, so yeah, it was an interesting process. Lots of work, but really, really rewarding. I'm sure by the very end, you're like super tired and super exhausted from the marathon, but like super happy <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that you've done it over, right? Is, like, it's that good kind of tired where you're like, I... I can't look at this book anymore. I need to not think <laughs> about it for a couple of months, but also just being very proud of what, of what you managed to, to do. So it was a weird combination of feelings towards the end of writing it. And then there were edits and so many revisions and just draft after draft. And when you think you're done, you're not done. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. It's, still, it's, it's published and it's bound and it still doesn't totally feel done. So 
honestly, I, I guess that's kind of the open-endedness of the novel too, though, right? Sometimes things never feel quite done because you always know there's like another mystery. <laughs> yeah, there's always something to pop out of the closet. It's totally just out of left field. You never quite know what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, I absolutely adored reading it and I had so much fun with it. And I told everybody I knew, like, I have a friend who published a novella and I <laughs> told all my friends at work. So um, speaking of, oh, so if lovely. anyone is Thank interested you. in, yes, of course, <laughs> if anyone's interested in Amy's new novella, you can get it at a local bookstore. Um, it is called Unlocking and it's really, really cool. Um, and I think this is going to conclude our interview officially. So thank you so much for coming on, Amy. <laughs> thank you for having me. It was Hopefully a pleasure to, to, to talk to you about the book. Yeah, I, it was so interesting. And I'm so glad I got to chat with you a little bit because I had so many questions. Um, so thank you very much. I'm glad you had questions. That's my dream as a writer is that you leave people with, <laughs> leave people with more questions and a little confused. That's exactly what you want to do. Perfect. That's all, that's all that you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was Maddie Robinson with local author Amy LeBlanc. You can buy Amy's debut novella, Unlocking, from a local bookstore near you. You're tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. It was a bright, cold day in Calgary, and the clocks were striking 13 on CJSW. Hi, this is Jenny for Writer's Block. Today I'm speaking with Mona Awad, author of the new book, All's Well. All's Well is based on the Shakespeare play, All's Well That Ends Well. Here's my conversation with Mona Awad. I guess, uh, first of all, introduce yourself and tell me how you started writing. Well, my name is Mona Awad. I'm a fiction writer. Um, I've written three books, 13 Ways of Looking at a Fat Girl, uh, which came out in 2016, and then Bunny, uh, which came out in 2019. And now I have this new book, um, a novel called All's Well, that comes out on August 3rd. How did I start writing? I... Uh, I started writing when I was a kid. You know, my mother would take me to work and to entertain myself. She worked in a deli um, in Montreal, actually. And um, and to entertain myself, I'd just flip those those paper menus over, and I would uh, I would write stories on the back of them to entertain myself. Yeah. Can you put yeah. in a few words what All's Well is about? Um, so All's Well is a novel that's set at a New England college in a theater department. And it's about a theater teacher named Miranda Sitch, who is suffering from severe chronic pain. And uh, she is in very dire straits when the book opens. And uh, she's desperate to stage Shakespeare's All's Well That Ends Well um, with her students. But her students hate the play. They hate her. They want to put on Macbeth. And Miranda doesn't want to put on Macbeth. But then things begin to shift, and maybe or maybe not, she'll get her way, and something might be done about her pain. So it's uh, it's kind of a play on All's Well That Ends Well and Macbeth at the same time. And so what was your encounter with Shakespeare like uh, in the first place? Uh, most people uh, read uh, Shakespeare in high school for the first time. Yeah, my first encounter with Shakespeare was in high school. I remember I had to, uh, when I read Macbeth, I had to do his monologue, uh, Is This a Dagger Which I See Before Me? And I made like a tinfoil dagger um, for my for my skits. Um, and the play really stuck with me. I was always interested in it, and I, I was always interested in productions of it. 
So, yeah, when I was an adult, um, I went to see this uh, production of Macbeth in New York that was interactive, and it's called Sleep No More, and it's very famous. Um, and it's in a warehouse, and there are multiple floors. And it's really, really uh, very creepy and very immersive. And that was really inspiring to me because when I moved through that production, I was struggling with chronic pain. So it was almost like living in the world of the play while dealing with uh, with pain. And and there, the, yeah, I just think there's a relationship there. There's a relationship between the play and theater and then the experience of, of being in pain that I wanted to explore. And, and so, so much about theater is about the physicality and the movement. And so I guess that is where the association is with like uh, physical pain that comes through um, uh, physical activity. Yeah, I, I agree. And, I, you know, when we are in pain uh, and we need to communicate it to someone else, uh, just to be able to make them understand what we're going through, especially if it's like invisible, like chronic pain is, we have to kind of perform it a little bit, you know, like act it out in order to explain it. And so there's this performance element to pain. Um, and so that's why I chose to make my main character um, an actor because, you know, she's grabbed the pain and she has to perform it. The doctors believe her. But when she performs it, she feels like she's faking. Um, and that's one of the, you know, one of the really um, important um, aspects, I think, of the book is just that notion that pain is kind of an incommunicable experience. And it's like a very personal, isolating reality. And it's hard to convince other people that you're going through it when you're going through it. Well, I also uh, did start uh, reading Shake. Um, well, I did start reading Shakespeare more recently as an adult. When I was younger, I read a lot of Hans Christian Andersen and Brothers Grimm, and uh, yeah. not just the Disney versions. And so mm-hmm. what was it like to uh, weave in the fairy tale and fantastical elements to the story? Oh, at this point, it comes naturally to me because it's just part of my idea of, like, how a story moves, you know, it's what's the most exciting to me about a story. Fairy tales explore emotional and psychological reality. Um, and they do it with, um, magic and fabulism, but there's a core of the real in, in, in every fairy tale. Uh, and that's what I love about them is that, is that, is that they use, they use the unreal to communicate the very real, the very human. But Hans Christian Andersen is very interested in transformation stories and the cost of, of, of changing. Because we all, there are things that we wish we could be. Um, and fairy tales explore that, you know, um, particularly his fairy tales. Um, but what they also explore alongside that is, is the cost of getting what you want, the cost of transforming. Um, and that's what this story explores. Uh, and it was very natural to me to, to incorporate that because Shakespeare is interested in that too. All right. Um, I got the sense that the, I got the sense of a voice that was sardonic, dark humor with a manic and mesmerizing, mesmerizing tone. How did it take to achieve the rhythm and voice that is the main character? Right. Um, I, I think it was, I think it came pretty fluidly to me. It came pretty easily to me. 
Um, her voice was, you know, um, felt very familiar. Like she, she is struggling with pain. So she is very world weary. Um, but she is an actor and she had all of these aspirations for herself. So she's very dreamy, you know, and she is longing, longing to return to that former self. Um, so there is that nostalgia there too. So yeah, it just, it, it was that, that her voice was kind of a gift, but what, what helped too was, um, was reading and listening to the Shakespeare plays. So I would listen to them on audio all the time just to capture the rhythms of speech and to make sure that Miranda's character and her voice had those rhythms. All right. And uh, what does it mean to pursue a career in the arts? What many people see are the glamour and of the stage and screen. So often private lives seem secondary to the public uh, persona. Yeah. Um, I mean, what does it mean to pursue a life? It's hard, you know, lack of security. Um, you know, it's so, so it's, it's it's a, it's difficult, but it's a very 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 exciting life too, um, because you're pushing yourself creatively. You're making things that don't exist, you know, and you're creating them. Um, and it's the most uh, incredible feeling when a, a story that you create is something that speaks to another person. It's a form of deep connection. Um, and, so I, I, you know, as difficult as it is, I, I don't think I would have it any other way. I don't think I could do anything else. All right. Thank you very much for your time, Dan. Thank you so much, Jenny. I appreciate it. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. That was my conversation with Mona Award. Mona Award is the author of a new book called All's Well about a theater professor who is dealing with chronic pain. The book takes Miranda Fitch on the journey to find cures for her pain, as well as a battle that ensues with her students over the play they will perform for the semester. The title of the book is from the play All's Well That Ends Well and has many elements from Shakespeare. Award will appear as part of the WordFest Imagine On Air event on August 24th at 7 p.m. She will appear with graphic novel artist Aminder Dollywall. Dollywall's latest publication is Cyclopedia Exotica, a graphic novel gathered into book form from the many serialized posts that Dollywall has uh, placed on Instagram. Uh, with a bachelor's in animation from Sheridan College, Dollywall is currently director of Disney TV Animation. Writer Zuzi Gartner will be host of the event. Visit wordfest.com to reserve a ticket for the free event. My name is Jenny and that's it for me for Writer's Block. You're tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times on CJSW. This is Maddie Robinson in conversation with Taylor Robinson in our next segment called, You Know What Really Flips My Pages? For this next episode, we're going to focus on a writer we all know and despise, James Patterson. Stay tuned.
Hey, so today we're going to do a short segment about things that bug us in the literary world. And today's topic is going to be our favorite author, James Patterson. Do you want to get us started about James Patterson, Tay? <laughs> All right. Well, our personal history with the good old Jim, we started reading his series, Maximum Ride, uh, in our early pre-pubescent years, at least. I don't it was know unfortunately, we like, very, very formative for both of us. So yeah, so and like looking back deep. now, yeah, looking back now, it's very fan fictiony, and like that's kind of why we're making this, I guess. You know, growing up, it's it's easier to see the flaws a little bit in some of his writing, but not to say he's a bad person. <laughs> I've heard he's a really big philanthropist, so we don't hate him. Here's the thing, though. This is what I wanted to get into. So you know what flips my pages about Jim Patterson being a philanthropist is that every single other philanthropists this day get shot at. Like Bill Gates, people hate Bill Gates these days. Have you gone outside? People hate him. Jeff Bezos, people yeah. hate him. But you know what? James Patterson flies under the radar and it kind of ticks me off a little bit. I'm like, why does he get to fly under the radar when like everyone else gets roasted on Twitter? Like, think about I mean, it. Fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. But like, is he as problematic as JK Rowling? Like, is that comparing apples to oranges here? It's a valid point. I don't think he's problematic. That's the thing. He's not even problematically tweeting out anything. He's just, he's just like a robot. Like he doesn't even, <laughs> he never well, says anything. Yeah. That's exactly the problem is, okay, one of the main critiques is obviously he publishes more books than kind of humanly possible. He does. I did some research. Okay. And uh, part of the reason why James Patterson flips our pages is because <laughs> I discovered that he's not even an author anymore. He stopped writing. So yeah, you heard me right. So yeah. James Patterson, one of the richest authors of the 21st century, doesn't actually write his novels. He gets other people to co-author them, which is why if you squint really, really hard at his covers, they'll say co-authored with blank and it'll have some random person's name because he doesn't want to get sued for like ghostwriting, I guess, technically. And it turns out too, he holds the Guinness Book of World Record titles for the most best-selling hardcover fiction novels at 76 hardcover fiction novels. But what really flips my pages <laughs> is that he probably didn't write any of them. <laughs> and for those who don't know, apparently, according to Wikipedia, Patterson has published over 200 novels. 200. And for those who don't know, Stephen King, who's considered extremely prolific, has only published around 63 novels. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously, yeah. James Patterson isn't even a real person. It's like the Avril Lavigne conspiracy. Like, is he even real? Yeah, it's kind of like the lizard person thing. Like, I don't know. <laughs> he might be suspicious. a lizard person. Actually, deeper the rabbit hole, when I was preparing for this segment, I didn't realize this, but I did some research into James Patterson, and guess what? What? So the Jeffrey Epstein, yes, I know you didn't expect this podcast to take this turn, <laughs> but the Jeffrey Epstein documentary is hosted by James Patterson. He's the one that made it a thing. He's the one that produced it and he wrote the book like four years ago about it. So when you're watching you this- You know what? I knew that. I've you seen did? it. Why yes. didn't you tell me? I forgot, yo. <laughs> how could you, <laughs> and how I remember could you being like, I remember being like, fancy meeting you here, James. Like, why are you here? Yeah, it's just like every so often it'll cut to like the police department and it'll cut to James Patterson on a beach and he's like, yeah, Jeffrey was one of my neighbors. And you're like, what are you doing yeah. here? No, I watched it <laughs> and that was really what I was thinking. Yeah. It's a little <laughs> suspicious. It's a little sus, honestly. Like, 
what's his beef? Like, what, what's the rabbit hole there? And another thing. I mean, <laughs> what? No, continue. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. What's the other thing? I need to know. So apparently he's been writing books with former President Bill Clinton, you know, the president in the White House. He has a book where the president goes missing and apparently it helps them be more realistic. But I'm yep, wondering yep, what's yep, he, yep, what yep. he's up to. I mean, he has so much money. He has so many resources. Is this is he like trying to infiltrate the government? Like, is there something going on here? I don't I'm not trying to go like full on hashtag Illuminati with this James Patterson segment. But I have to wonder, like. What's happening there? No. It's a little sketch. Little sketch. No, that kind of also reminds me of like when the Maxim Ride series went through that like super weird phase where it was talking about global warming. And I'm like, <laughs> who even as like however old I was, I was probably like twelve. I remember thinking, like, who's like behind this book? You know? Like it's not him anymore. Like this isn't for fiction and fun. Like this has a purpose. Like who's sponsoring this? Exactly. It's kind of like he's a lobbyist or something. And it makes me wonder yeah. if like Bill Clinton like owed him a favor or something. Like what's <laughs> what's happening there, Jims? I want to know. <laughs> I know. Okay, I know. Speaking of maximum rides. So, Tay, do you want to tell the listeners what what beef we have with one of his most popular young adult novels? <laughs> <laughs> okay so here's the thing like I already said before looking back as an adult like I've reread them like multiple times like many and every time I read them I'm more disappointed in like the general writing of <laughs> the book but in their defense like honestly James Patterson is known for like easy reads his stuff is you know 90% dialogue and super fast paced and super interesting plot and like well-written characters etc cetera, etc cetera. but by the end of the series the last two books I think or at least the last book like disgusting um <laughs> absolutely unacceptable and he I know he did not touch a single word in that book like they were completely ghostwritten and it's really heartbreaking as like a true fan for it was for me and Maddie to read the ending and just know that like there was no effort put into it I I don't even remember the ending of that series I honestly me think neither. I repressed it I think people need to start a James Patterson therapy fund for those of us who like <laughs> are repressing. And we got robbed of a writing. movie too. And we got robbed of a movie. Do you remember the movie? Did you watch the movie? Remember the one that they came out with or did you repress that? I too? don't. I, no, I don't. Okay. We literally watched canon. it together. No, so, no, so there was a movie. <laughs> fun fact. No, as I was wasn't. doing research, Jenna Marbles produced it from YouTube. Yes, this is correct. <laughs> the rabbit hole goes oh deep <laughs> and you know what that's disgusting when you think about how much money he makes for doing nothing he could have just put like a little bit of chump change into the film and had it be like great but no he has jenna marbles have to produce it for it to even get onto <laughs> the public sphere and it took like 10 years for it to happen and it was atrocious it was it was it was <laughs> it flipped our pages i mean to say because James yeah. Patterson, who makes approximately $90 million a year, that's right, $90 million, <laughs> apparently can't afford to hire, like, a decent movie, like, screenwriter or, or special effects producer or nothing. Apparently, it got a 37% on Rotten Tomatoes by one <laughs> reviewer. Like, one. <laughs> Nobody else even bothered to watch. <laughs> no, it was just that one guy. <laughs> just him subjected to it. <laughs> Torture chamber probably hired out by president bill clinton to like torture certain people with his books i don't know dude yeah i mean i've always had this theory not to like go completely on a tangent 
that like there's this like pool of celebrities that are so close in with like politicians they all have like an end game and like that's why they're all so rich and also why they're so like lobbyists is because like they know the world is ending soon and like they're all going to like mars or something so maybe that's james too if james is going to mars i feel really bad for everyone else stuck on mars I mean, there's like a level of conspiracy there, but at the same time, like, is he a lizard person or maybe is he just mastering the literature world of branding himself and getting to like sit back and just roll in the money? He worked in advertising is the thing. And so they say that's the reason he knows what he's doing. He like basically owns a James Patterson company. He's not like James Patterson, the person. But the thing that I, I think is kind of sketchy is if you go on Wikipedia, you know, everyone, everyone's favorite trusted source, it says that he has multiple degrees in English and, and also pursued a PhD. I think this is kind of BS because <laughs> I, I, I don't see a world where James Patterson managed to get a, a PhD in English literature unless that prof was like sleeping on the job. But I'm, I'm not too sure. I don't know. It's a little uh, yeah. sketchy. He doesn't ever like talk about it or mention it, which makes me think that it's kind of fake and he like bought a fake degree. Yeah, I kind of agree because also like, let's be real, like the writing within most of his work is not anything special. And I'm not trying to be rude, but considering also like the extent of his fame, couldn't he afford like a really good editor then or just something to polish it up a bit? You'd think he could afford like at least one shoe shiner or something, but I guess he just doesn't care. And there's the argument that he gets people that usually don't read to read. But at the same time, you got to wonder if he's like secretly trying to like just promote his brand under the course of like easy reading. Like 17% of adult fiction that is sold in the States is like James Patterson or something ridiculous. So it's like, mm, I don't know about that. I also want to talk about his masterclass ads. Have you seen those? Those tick me off. Yeah, those flip my pages. We'll definitely talk about them. Okay. So every time I go onto YouTube, I get ads for masterclass and they'll have like Margaret Atwood or James Patterson or Neil Gaiman trying to sell me like how to write a book. And they're like, buy my masterclass and you'll learn how to be a published author. Sometimes it's Margaret or Neil Gaiman, but unfortunately, usually it's freaking James Patterson. And I just have to say, I don't trust this masterclass at all. And I find the YouTube ads really annoying. <laughs> and if I wanted advice, I would just go to fanfiction.net and ask people what they think because <laughs> like, give me a break. I mean, like that's the problem is with his really crazy intense plots and, you know, super in-depth characterization comes not a lot of like, good writing and tons of dialogue and also like a lot of plot errors and I mean <laughs> it, it is it is similar to fan fiction when when I compare the two really and you know I haven't read a lot of his other stuff but from what like the vibe that I get and also you know what I couldn't get into anything that I bought that was his and I tried like I'm just I'm not invested I don't think he's a good author but that's nothing to say about you know the crazy plots he makes up because they're pretty like interesting i still consider maximum ride one of his books still one of my favorite books because oh i've read too. it i read nostalgia's it sake. oh yeah i've read it so many times like the covers fall off yeah that's what i was gonna say like i can't remember the ending of the series but i can pretty much recite like the first three books like well you literally rewrote an ending so taylor wrote an ending because she thought the ending was so bad like yeah so if there's <laughs> any like maximum ride diehard fans that also hated the ending and you want a resolution i've been working on it now for about 10 years 
Um, <laughs> not sure when I'm going to finish. Um, but if you give me, you know, like a phone number or an email address, I don't care how many years in the future it is, I will send it to you. When when James Patterson goes to Mars. <laughs> yeah, when he's gone, I'll show y'all how it was supposed to go down, how it was meant to be. And yeah, like I will admit, part of the reason I'm I'm he flips my pages, I guess, is because you know what people go off about the ending of Game of Thrones, but they never give James Patterson any crap for his ending. And I thought some some of his endings are like kind of atrocious, honestly, and he deserves to be. He's like an easy target for like Twitter drama. So I don't know why we don't bully him more. Yeah, um, before he takes off. I also think he's kind of a jerk because I remember when he produced his new idea called Bookshots. That's what he's calling them, Bookshots, which are books but under 150 pages. And the idea is that the youth and the millennials don't like to read. And so he made an app with all these really, really short novels because young people, I guess, hate reading now. And so now you can buy a bookshot and you get two stories for $4.99 a month or something. And I'm like, James... That's already been invented. We call it a novella. Like it literally already exists. And I'm just like, like dude, a short story or, or a short story or like a magazine article. Like, <laughs> but yeah, bookshots, they're revolutionizing literature, I guess. <laughs> See, and this is why I say that he's like a brand because he is like, he is mm -hmm. a brand the way that he brands himself and his writing and like his story and the way that he gets people to read. And that's why he flips my pages. <laughs> I completely agree with this sentiment. Um, his stories do hold a place in my heart, but we, we got to be real. James Patterson kind of sucks. Yeah, I mean, we love you, but at the same time, you kind of suck. That was Maddie Robinson in conversation with Taylor Robinson on a short segment called, You Know What Really Flips My Pages? Stay tuned for more. You're tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. As Ernest Hemingway always said, write drunk, edit sober, and listen to CJSW. This is an excerpt from a piece called Sun's Cosmic Latte. I've heard of you. At first, my little sister said she saw me at the mall, a boutique, pressing on red lipstick. I knew it wasn't me, not because I don't frequent that store, but because red isn't my type. No pop my cherry or scarlet quickie. I gravitate towards the morbidly Crayola. Violent violet, steel blue Saturdays, electric green. Then another encounter two days into August long weekend at Techno's Bowl. My coworker watched you crane over a marbled pink ball, nine pounds. You hurled it towards the ramparts, bracketing it off the gutters. You got the seven ten split, she told me, like she was reciting details from a drunken evening. Don't you remember? She held her fists together, sticking her pinkies out to illustrate. It was a miracle you hit both at once. Water cooler camaraderie took a strange turn. I could not acknowledge this infamous win, the tricks of an alternate history. There is only one glaring possibility, a secret twin, a doppelganger. My sister suggested I start looking into birth records. There's a lot of medical malpractice in maternity wards, she said. Maybe they stole one of you? 
My mother shot it down. She was painfully conscious during my birth. Aunt Velda used to have someone who looked like her back in the 80s, Mom said. And Uncle Don asked her out, thinking it was someone else from the back of her head. They stayed together even though she was the wrong woman. Thank God she wore her hair up that day, Mom said, and she crossed herself. Everyone started seeing you. At the car wash, bright blue Vespa, swimming at the crystal pool, chatting with the homeless veteran on the corner, providing steaming parcels of breakfast sandwiches. You were so nice to him, they fawned. Outside that cafe you read at, you know the one. But they couldn't remember the name. I started keeping a list. All the Starbucks, obviously. Copycat coffee shops for a carbon copy girl. But I didn't find you. Then I checked all of Woodland Avenue, vegan cafes with purple potato hot chocolate and $9 IPAs. I frequented Meat and Marble down on Broad Street, even though I knew it was more of a bar and not a cafe. But I needed the shot. I was beginning to consider that this was all part of an elaborate prank. I even tried Tim Hortons. After two months of inactive sightings, I threw out my list. I gave up. Stumbling home from a casual encounter in the Northeast, I now discover the yellow diner on Cambrian Road, obtrusively happy like a dandelion poking out of the concrete. Maisie's Sugar Coat Cafe, unlisted on Google. Outside, a chalkboard reads, try our cosmic latte. I enter. The wind chime in the doorway falls off and tangles like a limp marionette. The sound shatters. I see you, me, sitting at the window, finger painting in the latte art in our coffee. We make eye contact. Two cue balls hit. I whirl off kilter. I've seen myself on video, but not like this. I fish hook my hair on my index finger. You tug back your bangs behind your ears. We both laugh, nervous. Spooky action at a distance. Cosmic latte is the average color of the universe. Wikipedia calls it a pale yellow green, like the siding on my mom's bathroom door. Pale, bland, buttery. And it tastes delicious. I've heard of you, I say, and I explain the mystery, something more surreal than supernatural. As we talk, the sips justify the pauses. The silence is cushy and warm, unlike any silence I've had during a conversation before. It's like the slow breathing that happens during dreaming as someone sleeps. I dyed my hair as soon as that weird lady at the bowling alley tried to get me to do vodka shots, you say, and you rabbit your nose. I knew you must be close. Kathy, I say, yeah, I can't stand her. Me neither, you agree. You finger the ear of the mug, the cosmic latte down to a rim of lactated bubbles. Beneath the silence lies tin can telephone telepathy. I can hear the echo of what you're going to say before you say it. The crystal chime in the doorway has been restrung. It slices prisms across your face. So I was close, I say, 
Well, what do you mean? There's dozens of us, you explain. Dozens, I think, like wildlife. You say, another version of us lives on the coast. She thinks she's unhappy. She teaches art history and inherits a cabin. And another one switched into French lit. She has a bunch of tattoos, you say, and you point to your wrist, your navel, your rib cage. You say, she regrets three. A butterfly, I think. I almost talked myself in. Once you meet one, you say, you start meeting them all. I've been just searching for one, just one a little bit more miserable than me. And I think that I chose the wrong destiny. Do you know that feeling, you ask, and you look in the dregs of your coffee as if you can make out the subtle iconography. I look, too. I never planned on what to say once I found you. I feared competition, you, the understudy, to whisk away my job, my friends, my family. Now I see nothing but your waterline, red as a slit wrist, and my own puddled reflection in our teacups. I ask, did you ever have glow-in-the-dark ceiling stars on your bedroom ceiling? You nod, confused. Cosmic latte is a color, I say, that color exactly, but it's in everything. The nightshade blooms under our eyelids, the blackened hall of dead teeth, lipstick on the ex's cheek, back bumper rust, rainbowed oil leaks. Each glint on snow is a refraction of the same hole, I say. There are no bad colors, no bad choices. Just different, you respond. You look apprehensive. I don't know about this cosmic latte, you say, I think I'm just lactose intolerant. We both laugh, and I assure you that I'm sure your particular color of us is okay. Since then, I've met many other versions of me, but I will never forget you. When I walk the streets, I see you in every mirrored reflection. Each decision I make weighs against the best version of myself, a bubble reality. I'm half convinced Narcissus was reaching for something else when he drowned, not a love of the self, but the other, that maybe he knew something we don't. I search for you again. Next time I order a cosmic latte, they've taken it off the menu. You've been listening to Writer's Block here on CJSW 90.9 FM. Thanks to our two interviewees from today, Mona Awad and Amy LeBlanc, as well as Maddie Robinson for her short reading. If you miss anything today or want to check out some of our previous episodes, go to cjsw.com slash writers dash block and listen to the podcast form of any of our shows. On behalf of the Writer's Block Collective, we would like to thank you for listening to our show for the last hour today and keep it locked to CJSW 90.9 FM. Live music is a huge part of what makes the city what it is. That's why this August, we're taking a look at Calgary's best venues, past and present. What's 28 years old and is North America's leading contemporary art gallery? That's right, folks. It's New Zones Gallery. 
perfectly located right here in Calgary on 730 11th Ave Southwest. New Zone's Contemporary Art Gallery has become a major voice for the international art community while simultaneously becoming a hub for up-and-coming Canadian artists to show off their work. From photography to sculptures, New Zones offers a wide variety of art to explore and enjoy. You can visit New Zones every Tuesday and Friday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., and Saturdays, 12 a.m. to 4 p.m. They're also always open at NewZones.com. Well, you know what they say, you don't know what you got until it's gone. And that includes the Stampede Corral. It was built in 1950. Think about that. The Stampede Corral was built in 1950 and demolished 71 years later in 2021. Now, the corral in its time was an all-purpose venue. You could play hockey, uh, curling, you could rodeo, wrestling, tennis, all under one roof, but of course, not at the same time. Now, the corral was also the first home of the Calgary Flames. When they moved to town in 1980, the Flames played at the corral until the dome was opened in 1984. And of course, the Stampede Corral had concerts. In the 50s, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the Corral was the place for major concerts in Calgary and even continued to host dozens of shows every year after the Dome opened. Now, the first show I saw at the Corral was The Killers in 2004, and it was incredible. The place was packed and the band was amazing. Nobody sat down the whole concert which is good because the seats at the corral were the hardest seats anywhere. If you sat in the seats for a concert at the corral, not only would your ears be ringing the next day, but your seat would be sore. And of course, everyone's ears would definitely be ringing after a show at the corral because the sound was terrible. If it wasn't a full house, the echo in that place was horrendous. For instance, I saw Black Alicious at the Corral, a wicked hip-hop group, and they were actually headlining some sort of skate event, so most of the floor had skate ramps all over it, and on top of that, there was like nobody there. So the sound was bouncing all over the place. The MC, Black Thought, was getting every word he rapped bounced back to him. It was crazy. Now, also being such an old building, the Corral wasn't really fitted with proper ventilation either. Anytime I sat in one of those hard seats up in the back, like when I saw Anthrax and Megadeth, there was always a cloudy haze hovering over the crowd. Even though there weren't any support columns, you always couldn't see also in every seat at the corral. For a John Fogarty concert, the hanging speakers were in our way so we could only see John and the drummer. I still don't know how many guitar players he had for that show. And sometimes you would see a show that was just magic. I was at the Stone Temple Pilots for their final Calgary concert. It was at the Corral, and within a few months, Scott Wyland was gone. It was an incredible show. Now, even though the seats were too hard, the sound was terrible, the ventilation was non-existent, and the view wasn't always there, I'm sure going to miss the Corral. Keep it tuned to CJSW 90.9 throughout August to hear more stories and memories from our favorite venues. Bringing you the best of contemporary classical and hits from centuries before. CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary and broadcasting on Treaty 7 lands. 